This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Network. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Network does not take responsibility for the statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to Executive Leaders Radio. In this hour, you'll hear directly from our region's finest business leaders. Through each of the interviews, these high-achieving leaders become relatable role models who share how they were able to build their enterprise, their personal secrets of success, about leadership styles and opportunities that lie ahead. Prepare to be inspired and entertained and to hear wisdom unheard elsewhere. Executive Leaders Radio. You're listening to Executive Leaders Radio, broadcast from Cressa, the tenant representation real estate firm in Tyson's Corner, Virginia. And we have a great lineup of guests for you in our show today. John, please give us a rundown. Our first guest is Tiffany olson Cleman, CEO of Distal Networks. Our second guest is Rob Henninger, President and CEO of Henninger Media Services. Our third guest is Joe Follett, co-founder and CEO of Yambu. And our fourth guest is Sheldon Klein. President of the American Intellectual Property Law Association and partner of Gray Plant Moody. Excellent. I'd like to uh, thank my co-hosts today, Haley Morris from Cressa, Andrew Howard, Howard Insurance, Alex Bartholomew, People Stretch Solutions, Shirley Mowry, Hertzbach, and Nick Gurig, Remen, Payton, and Braswell. Let's get to know our first guest, Tiffany olson Cleman, CEO of Distill Networks. Tiffany, what is Distill Networks? What are you guys doing? We're a cybersecurity startup focused on bot mitigation. Mm-hmm. How large or how small is this organization? 100 employees. And when was the company founded? It was founded back in 2012. And when did you join the organization? I started uh, in October of 2017. So you were brought in to take it the next level. What the, where are you from originally? Originally from the Quad Cities, Illinois. Mm-hmm. And how many brothers and sisters? Two older brothers and a younger sister. Two older brothers and a younger sister. And how young were you when you started taking things the next level? Uh, probably uh, eight years old mm-hmm. when I had doing? my mm-hmm. first babysitting job. Uh huh. And uh, what was going on with? Didn't something happen with volleyball? What was going on with volleyball? Yeah, I had I tried my hand at many different sports over the years, but volleyball is what stuck. Why? Why? Why volleyball? I loved the the team oriented kind of dynamics. What do you mean? What are you talking about? Well, you can't win by yourself uh-huh. in volleyball. It's, it's What was your role in the sport. volleyball team? Uh, I would say I was the cheerleader. What do you mean you were the cheerleader? Um, I helped organize the team, drove the team mm-hmm. to What's do better. What's the similarity between being your, the role that you played uh, uh, you know, with volleyball when you were a kid and it says here you're the CEO of Distill Networks. Yeah, I think um, the connection there is um, I'm the person that's called upon in a lot of situations to come into an organization and mm-hmm. assess the team, assess mm-hmm. the dynamics, mm-hmm. and help take the team to the and next level. And in terms of brothers and sisters, what's the age difference amongst you guys? Uh, my older brothers are 9 and 11 years older, mm-hmm. and my younger sister is 3 years younger. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you uh, adopted the sense of responsibility from a young age. How did uh, having a younger sister uh allude to that um my sister and I have this or had this love-hate relationship we are now the best of friends but I always have felt like I had a responsibility to look out for her to care for her 
um, and quite frankly, to push her to be better. Mm-hmm. Um, Andrew. Tell me about your father and the influence he had on you. Uh, my father is very hardworking, um, strong work ethic, very um, strong um, in terms of driving us all to be better people. Um, what was the character trait that he, that you remember most about him? Um, we were talking about integrity, and um, you know, this is it's, this is a business show, and uh, yeah. you know, all we read about is people stealing and crooks and everything else. So, tell me about dad's integrity and how you transition that to distill uh, well i mean he was a teacher uh, by trade um but we didn't have a lot of money so he took on several jobs carpentry among other things um and so just watching him instilled in me that sense of hard work mm-hmm. yeah Nick? Hard work. Uh, when we were talking in the green room green room uh, you had mentioned that you had a number of different jobs, five, ten, eight. I think you mentioned uh, that you had the babysitting job. Um, did you ever get, during that period, did you ever get jealous of the other kids out there playing? No, not really. I mean, I didn't feel like I was sacrificing anything. Um, for me, it was just important to um, kind of make a little bit extra money um, to be able to pay for things that I wanted. Um, number two, I mean, I was really interested in the relationships, um, whether I was at work or on the volleyball court or in Girl Scouts um, with my cousins. It was always about the relationships. And when you're doing these things, uh, working and all that, I mean, do you feel like you're working or do you feel like you're... I mean, there are days where it feels like work, but for the most part, I love what I do. I love the team I love the relationships that I have with the team and I Mm -hmm. love pushing the team to be better Alex that's great so let's talk about mom and the impact she had what was she doing 8 to 14 um my mom met my dad working at Elaine Powers um but as uh they wanted to have more children they decided they couldn't afford uh, for my mom to continue to work and so she ended up you know, being a, a caretaker at home, that said, she established an at-home daycare service in our home. So we were surrounded by a lot of kids, actually. She was very hardworking. Right, right, right. So also. you were, so you, how old were you when your mom started this babysitting service? Uh, I was young, four, uh-huh. three, four. So how'd you feel about having other kids in the house and your mom's attention divided? I, I thought it was great. Uh-huh. Um, Did you ever help out? Had to. How, how young were you when you started helping out and what did that look like? Um, Probably four, five, helping to change diapers. So you're four or five years old. Your mom's running babysitting service in the house, and you're helping change diapers. So you do have this thing about responsibility from an early age. And it sounds like your mom was quite the organizer if she started the babysitting service. She was, and she is. She throws the best darn parties, too. Uh-huh. What's, what's that have to do with your building distal networks, a sense of organization and people? Um. I think I learned early on not only the hard work ethic from both my parents, um, but the importance of um, taking my skills. And, you know, while I wasn't the most athletic or the best academically in terms of just natural talent, I learned I had to work really hard, you know, to get to the next level. Yeah, before the show, you mentioned that uh, you kind of felt like you had been an old soul all my life. When, how young were you when that showed up and you realized that 
you had a level of maturity that was maybe unusual for a kid? Um, really early on, I would say four or five, I would be able to go up to large groups of people, including adults, and just like start conversations. So how does that show up, that old soul? How does that show up in your role as CEO at Distal Networks? I, you know, I get the opportunity to meet a lot of people every day, um, including, you know, really important people, uh, people with a lot of prestige. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, I learned, I think, at a young age that we're all just people. It doesn't matter if you're old or young, if you're, you know, have a lot of money or you don't. Everybody should be treated the same. So basically, that's the integrity from your dad coming out, it sounds like. Yeah. What do your parents think about your success today at Distal Networks? Um, they're proud. How do, you, how do you know that? They tell me. What do they tell you? Is it because of the money you're making? Is that why they're proud of you? No, no. It has nothing to do with the money. What's it have to do with? <clears throat> um, just that I'm a good person. What's that? Uh, what's that look like? How do, you, how do you measure that? What are you talking about? Um, how do I measure that? Um, it has to do with the team, doesn't it? It, uh, in large part, it does. It mm -hmm. has to do with my kids and how they're growing up. And ah, what's you know, the similarity? What's the similarity between being a mom and being the CEO of Distill Networks? Oh goodness! Well, you have a lot of responsibility to make sure that you're providing them you know, the best environment possible, mm -hmm. you know, the love and support that they need, the resources that they need to be good human beings. Are you talking about the team or the, or your kids? Both. So you really see a similarity there. Oh, absolutely. You have, you have a sense of responsibility both ways, don't you? Yeah. Uh-huh, John, what were you thinking? Oh, I was just, you know, thinking also that same responsibility must have come out in your decision to go to the Coast Guard Academy. It did. It did. I mean, number one, uh, my father actually wanted to attend an academy when he was younger, but he was uh, born deaf in one year mm -hmm. and couldn't attend. And so uh, I was able to, you know, attend one of the academies, mm -hmm. the Coast Guard Academy. Mm -hmm. um, it was a fantastic experience, yeah, an like amazing you, service. Sounds like you really yeah. lived it out. What, yeah. What's the website address for Distill Networks? Distillnetworks.com. How do you spell that? D-I-S-T-I-L networks.com we've been speaking with tiffany olson Kleeman, ceo of distal networks here on executive leaders radio don't forget to visit our website it's executiveleadersradio.com to learn more about our executive leaders it's executiveleadersradio.com learn more about our executive leaders we'll be back in a moment right after this business spotlight one help building your business with help from this show's ceos our ceos can help you uncover more opportunities grow your sales connect you help you raise money, all the big issues, because our CEOs have been there and done that. They've succeeded in creating millions of jobs and earning millions of dollars, and some are available to advise you. Now, email mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. That's mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. The same CEOs you've heard on the show for 10 years may be willing to help you build your business, uncover new opportunities, grow your sales, connect you, help you raise money, all the big issues, because our CEOs have been there and done that, succeeding in creating millions of jobs and earning millions of dollars. And some are available to advise you. 
Now, email mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. That's mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. And your name is? Chuck Ockeltree. And Chuck, what organization are you with? The National Conference Center and West Belmont Place Event Center. Uh huh. And what makes this organization special? The National Conference Center was built um, to be the nation's premier uh, meeting and event venue. Um, it's not a traditional hotel. Mm-hmm. So even though we have 900 guest rooms and all the services and amenities of a traditional hotel, mm-hmm. because of our size, mm-hmm. we're able to uh, deliver um, an environment that is very conducive to uh, learning, development. And who are your clients? Our clients are uh, many of the, the corporate 100, corporate 500, as well as uh, because of our location in Leesburg, Virginia, mm-hmm. we do a lot of business with Washington, D.C. Uh, government agencies. Mm-hmm. And what do you like about your job? What I like about uh, is we've had the opportunity to bring new leadership to the National Conference Center, blend with the tremendous service team that's built a reputation over the years uh, for great service. And uh, we've had a lot of fun um, helping our clients take advantage of the 65-acre campus. How about you personally? What what do you enjoy about your job? I enjoy that that we've uh, had a very, very very successful turnaround in Mm -hmm. uh, the two and a half years, Mm -hmm. uh, taking the National Conference Center uh, from where it was in 2014 with Excellent. the new, new ownership, we've literally doubled the revenue. And what's, so. your, what's your role in the organization again? Uh, my role is Chief Marketing Officer. And what's that mean? It, good question. It means that uh, uh, we're involved with branding, mm-hmm. uh, everything to do with the sales, the marketing, the promotion, and uh, the business development. So you're actually going out there and you're actually involved with helping bring in the clients. Exactly, yes. And sir. I guess the way you're doing that is you're actually talking to a lot of the clients, making sure that you know your services are valuable. We talk to a lot of the clients and we do a lot of uh, events What's as well. What's the website address of the organization? www.conferencecenter.com. Let me have that one more time. www.conferencecenter.com. This has been your business spotlight. We're back. You're listening to Executive Leaders Radio. This is your host, Herb Cohen, and we'd like to introduce Rob Henninger, who's the president and CEO of Henninger Media Services. Rob, what is Henninger Media Services? We're a video production and post-production firm. And how large or how small is the team? We're a little over 30 people and a facility 20,000 square feet in Arlington, Virginia. And how'd you get a job with this company? I grew out of a freelance career in um, uh, film production, basically. So you started the business? I started the Uh business Where Were you from originally? Were you from originally? I was born in uh, New London, Connecticut, but mm-hmm. have lived in McLean area, mm-hmm. McLean Tyson's Corner since 1950. And how many brothers and sisters do you have? I have uh, three brothers and one sister. Where are you in the pecking order? I'm the second oldest. All right. What was going on with you in the green room we were talking earlier? And what was going on with you 8 to 14 years old? Well, when you said 8 to 14, um, I was recuperating. We're in a uh, physical therapy recovery from uh, polio. I had contracted that when I was 7 years old. How do you know you contracted it, and how did you contract it? Well, um, my parents had a strict rule about uh, soft drinks, and we were only allowed one drink a, a, uh, a week. But I had some buddies who had a bottle of Pepsi. We were out in the field, and they shared that. Uh, they were soon diagnosed with uh, polio, and my parents were watching me and realized that I contracted that as well. Mm-hmm. All right. Andrew, what do you, what do you got? During that, that time in your recovery time, um, how did your – your family, you know, handle your recovery, and, and tell me about uh, the experience we discussed in the green room. Well, it was a little bit. It was a little bit unusual. The, our doctor, our family doctor, did not want me to go to hospital because that was a time of iron lungs and things like that. So she had my parents 
developed the home as a quarantine area so that everybody was at home and I was basically hospitalized at home for about, I think it was a month or two months. I don't remember exactly how long. And the doctor would stop by every night on her way back from Washington, D.C. to uh, where she lived in McLean in um, Virginia and have cocktails with my parents and look after me. And so I had a recuperation that was in a very, or a, a, a period of illness uh, surrounded by people that uh, mm -hmm. really cared for As me. As the second oldest, how, how did your older brother handle <laughs> My brother, uh, in terms of the experiences, the one strong memory that I had, my brother, after all the time I'd been in bed, thought that I'd actually been kind of faking it. And I actually did too, because I was just lying there. And, and uh, he uh, dragged me out of bed and I was on the floor and I couldn't move my legs or anything like that. And that's when I realized it was really very serious uh -huh. and uh, it was kind of terrorizing but and my brother felt like terrible about it but Nick that was the reality um you know grow, going through that uh is there any anything that kind of stands out to you any image or, or really looking back well I think you know the things that I had to uh d deal with first of all my I wasn't allowed any kind of soft toys any animals or stuffed animals and things I what had happened they'd to all your toys? taken out and burned well, well, your toys had gotten burned? Yeah, it was uh, like I, my favorite toy was a little monkey named Jocko, and he got taken out in the backyard and burned. Uh, I was only allowed to have toys that could be sterilized, like stainless steel, uh, Chinese puzzles, and things like that. So um, that was... After uh, you recovered from all this, did you feel like you kind of had to reinvent? Uh, the, the recovery was uh, extended. I guess that's when the question about the 8 to 14, uh, uh, right afterwards, the polio is a disease of the nerves, and it affected, it took away my muscles in my stomach, my hands, but it also left me tremendously uh, uh, emotional, I guess. So, so I would end up just for no reason at all or just could be crying, and that was very embarrassing for me. And um, How did you feel about mom and dad? How did mom and dad treat you? Mom and dad treated me with uh, uh, just tremendous love. I mean, I think they really are the reason that I kind of got through that. Um, I realized about them that they, just how much they cared for what, me and what, what they what, would do. How do you think that, that love uh, has affected your building your business? I think it has been a um, experience of really respecting people, uh, wanting to take care of our um, employees. I think that's been a key, key factor. We have at our business people that have been there 20, 25 years, um, tremendous uh, loyalty there, which translates into loyalty between our clients, mm -hmm. many of whom have been mm -hmm. with us for Shirley? the same period of time. Surely. So post-polio experience and recovery, um, what were some of the things you got involved with? I... Um, by middle school, I had really fallen in love with the theater. I, I got, uh, by the eighth grade or so, was going to McLean High School, got into some plays, and that grew and developed. I, I had an interest in sports, track and field, but the, um, uh, the theater really was very demanding, I guess, and that became my passion. Alex? Why theater? Why was it so important to you? I, I think that the opportunity to uh, live a character. Also, I, I, you have to admit that the, the, the discipline of putting a show together and then ultimately the performances and the ability to perform and ultimately the applause, frankly. So <clears throat> how have you translated the love of performing to your business today? I think because we're in a creative field and we, uh, we're doing more background work in editorial and uh, sound mixing and things of that sort, but I think that the whole presentation aspect of it um, for all of us, we have to perform for our clients. What do you think gave you the confidence to um, perform not only in, in 
theater, but also to build a business and not think of yourself as a victim. Looking back on it, I, I really do remember that thinking, uh, realizing, having come through that experience with polio, I, I had a deeply integrated sense of uh, being a survivor. It's like anything, that, nothing could get me down. I felt, you know, I had a tremendous uh, confidence and support. And um, no, no matter whatever to throw at me, I'd, I'd figure out a way. Do you, it sounds like, so you kind of, while you were dealing with the polio, you lost a little bit of control over your emotional, right? And it's interesting that you went into theater in which you kind of had to channel and conjure up uh, and, and kind of exhibit your mm -hmm. emotions. And do you think that the polio had anything to do I, with that? I would think so. I think that it really uh, did help in the performances and things that I did. I really did, um, uh, had no, um, I could draw on those emotions, yes. John? So you had this deep, unconditional love for your, from your parents. How many children do you have? I have seven kids. And what has been the theme for you and your wife while raising those seven kids? Well, um, we just love kids. We really are. Uh, we uh, we married young. We had three kids. Uh, after seeing some of, as we got into our thirties, our a lot of our friends were getting married, and they started having kids. And we looked at and said, "Well, we could have some more." And uh, and we did. So we had uh, we had the first, and then after that got started, we wound up with four more. So I'm guessing now there's some grandkids in the picture. What's that? Are there some grandkids in the picture? There are eight grandchildren. Yes. And then how do you how do you how do you relate to those grandkids who are now some of them <laughs> at the age when you had polio when we were recovering? Well, I'm just grateful that they're not uh, experiencing anything like that for sure. Um, yeah, it's. And what are you trying to pass down to them? To, the to your grandchildren, yeah. To my grandchildren, um, just to enjoy life and to uh, and to know that they are uh, loved unconditionally. Do you, do you think that uh, polio stuff uh, gave you a um, an appreciation of life? Absolutely, yeah. I think uh, not at the time, but as I look back on it, I feel so fortunate. My friends that I caught the polio from, they they were uh, uh, severely crippled, and and I'm not. Uh, I was able to recover almost fully. So it was, uh, you know, you, you, you see, you've made the lemonade out of lemons. I mean, you look back on that experience, and it's really had a pretty profound impact on your life. It's had a big impact. I mean, you go through the teenage years and then on into college and on, and you almost forget those things. And then as you start to realize and think back, it's like that really did have a tremendous uh, um, tremendous impact, very formative. And, and the impact on building a business, let me have that again. The impact of building the business, uh, again, was sort of, it's, I started the business in film editing and video editing was just sort of in its uh, mm -hmm. infancy. It really mm -hmm. wasn't uh, uh, very advanced at all. And I, it was like, well, people are figuring out as we go, I can do it. And that gave me the confidence to, I guess, to just dive in and make it happen. The polio gave you the confidence. I, I wouldn't have. Uh, I wouldn't put it that the polio actually did. I think that just the the experience of uh, surviving, of of making, uh, doing whatever needs to happen, doing whatever needs you need to do to get the job done. I think that's basically that's from it. the polio as well as building a business. Sounds to me like you've got a lot of uh, character. What's the website address of your organization? The website like? is uh, Henninger H E N N I N G E R dot com. Let me have that one more time. Henninger, 
H-E-N-N-I-N-G-E-R.com. We've been speaking with Rob Henninger, Henninger who's the uh, president and CEO of Henninger Media Services here on Executive Leaders Radio. We'll be back in a moment right after this break. Want to help building your business with help from this show's CEOs? Our CEOs can help you uncover more opportunities, grow your sales, connect you, help you raise money, all the big issues, because our CEOs have been there and done that. They've succeeded in creating millions of jobs and earning millions of dollars, and some are available to advise you. Now, email mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. That's mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. The same CEOs you've heard on the show for 10 years may be willing to help you build your business, uncover new opportunities, grow your sales, connect you, help you raise money, all the big issues, because our CEOs have been there and done that, succeeding in creating millions of jobs and earning millions of dollars. And some are available to advise you. Now, email mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. That's mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. And your name is? Jeff Lawson. And Jeff, what organization are you with? I'm with Lakota Hotels and Resorts. And what do you guys do? What kind of stuff are you doing that's special? Well, we manage uh, conference centers and hotels, and we're currently managing the National Conference Center in Leesburg, Virginia. National Conference Center. How large or how small is this organization? Um, the conference center itself is 900 rooms in size, 350,000 square feet of meeting space, dining facilities for 850, uh, exercise facility all set on 61 acres of land. Wow, this is a large organization, isn't it? It is, very large. Uh-huh. And what's your role in the organization? I'm the general manager, and I've oversight of the uh, property and all the hospitality services that occur. Well, what's the general manager supposed to do with this large facility? Make sure, I have a, make sure eight executive community members and a, and a full uh, staff of 210 do their daily jobs. So how many folks do you have running through your halls on a weekly basis or daily basis or annual basis? What's that look like? Well, on a weekly basis on a full house, we'll have uh, 900 per night, um, seven nights, uh, 6,300, which translates to about 20,000 meals a week. Wow. And uh, your job, are you working nine to five or do you end up having to work evenings and early mornings and weekends and stuff like that? No, I'd say I'm always on duty. Uh-huh. Do you, wh- what do you enjoy about your job? Meeting people, working with some of the finest hospitality people in Virginia, which is my team, and meeting our clients because they're wonderful. So you're helping your clients plan their events? Well, we help plan. Uh, they are there for some form of education that goes on at one end of our business, and at the other end of our business, they're there for social catering events, uh, weddings and such. So you're, you're, well, you're running a 24 by 7 facility, aren't you? We are. Uh-huh. What's the website address of this organization? Conferencecenter.com. Let me have that again. Conferencecenter.com. And your name again is? Jeff Lawson. And the name of the organization? Lakota Hotels and Resorts. And this has been your Business Spotlight. We're back. You're listening to Executive Leaders Radio. This is your host, Herb Cohen, and we would like to introduce Joe Fallett, who is the co-founder and CEO of an organization known as Yambu. Joe, what is Yambu? What are you guys doing? Uh, We are a biometric authentication company, uh, and so we do fingerprint-based authentication, some facial recognition, too, uh, entry, check-in, payment, uh, loyalty, and more. Mm -hmm. And uh, how large or how small is this organization? Uh, Ten people, but growing. Uh huh. And what kind of money did you raise? Uh, we've raised two million dollars so far. Uh-huh. Where you're from originally? Uh, Cheshire, Connecticut. And uh, what was going on with you, eight to fourteen years old or so? What was? Uh, how were you feeling about things? 
Um, I think one thing we talked about was uh, I actually failed my first uh, Spanish test when I was in high school. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, uh, anyhow, it was hard for me. I remember having a distinct moment thinking, heck, maybe I'm stupid. Uh-huh. Because you, sp- because you failed a Spanish test. Yeah. I mean, I'd always worked really hard. I'd, I'd done really well in middle school, but uh, it made me think. Uh-huh. Andrew? Uh, you thought you were stupid, but uh, we were talking in the green room. <coughs> you, you turned that around, became valedictorian. You attended Princeton, Harvard. I did. Uh, where did that uh, that drive for education and, and that rebounding come from? Yeah, I think um, I think my parents, my mom, my dad, they taught me work hard, don't waste your talent. If you fail, fail forward, um, learn from it, uh, and it's okay to fail. I mean, I think the way that I view success is really just a string of failures. Even in my own company now. Uh, we've been failing from the beginning, but we, we just won't give up. We're really hard workers. Mm-hmm. What do you mean fail f- you're failing right now? Tell us a little more about, about that. <coughs> well, if you think about the history of my business, um, or I should say our business, um, we started out as a biometric payment company doing biometric payments plus loyalty, um, all with your fingerprint. It's funny. You could even pay naked with our service. <laughs> we found, though, that while there's money in that, um, there's also the market You know, maybe isn't big enough to sell fast enough to make the business grow as fast as we want. And so we became a diversified biometric company. So now we actually do entry, we do check-in, we work in gyms doing personal trainer check-in, using your uh, fingerprint as a member card. So you told us a great story about dad and and the impact he had. How does that impact, what what did he do in terms of the journey of his medical career um, and how it's impacting you today? Yeah, I think my, you know, my dad started his own business. Um, he uh, worked really hard, spent his first two, three years working 100-hour weeks away from the family. But he did that because he wanted to have some balance with his family life later on. Uh, and so after that, he started working about 30 to 40-hour weeks because he wanted to spend time, you know, coming to my lacrosse games, coming to my football games, um, just really watching us grow up. That's great. And what about mom? What, what was her biggest impact on you? <clears throat> so mom... Uh, I mean, she was incredibly generous. She'd give you the shirt off of her back. She only wanted other people to feel happy, and she got all of her happiness from watching us be happy. And how's that generosity happen is translated into business and what I you're doing? I think through me, the way that I manage people is I really want them to be happy. I feel a sense of compassion, a sense of ownership over their careers, whether it's with Yambu or whether it's somewhere else. Um, and I think I want them to feel empowered. You know, I actually lead democratically. And it really isn't about who's right or who's wrong. I want to sit down at a table and let the best idea win. And how did your um, extreme thinking of if you're not being exceptional, you're failing, or if you fail a test, you're dumb, (coughs) translate into your success in solving problems and growing a business and managing people today? I think I'm very detail-oriented. And so it would make me um, think about, okay, I'm not good at Spanish. What do I do now? Right? How can I do it better? And so I went on to get an A- in that course. And actually went on to get all A's and a lot of A pluses in uh, high school, to be frank. And uh, I mean, I feel fortunate for having worked that hard. The funny thing is that um, maybe you don't believe this here in valedictorian or Princeton or Harvard. I I truly don't believe that I'm smarter than anyone in this room or most people out there. I did have a very fortunate upbringing and and I have a lot to credit to that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I got lucky too, but uh, I honestly think it was just an incredible amount of hard work. Surely. Um, let's go back to sports. You mentioned both football and lacrosse. What position did you play in football? That's funny. So uh, you guys can't see me, but I'm five foot seven. I weigh about 160 pounds. Uh, probably don't have nearly as much muscle as I'd, I'd like. But uh, so I played. Um, I was a lineman. 
And so what, what does that entail? So alignment is uh, me uh, facing generally people who are 200 to 250 pounds. Even in high school, I encourage you to gain weight uh, to become that big. And uh, you just need to hit them. Uh, so you stand in front of them, you hit them, and you guard your quarterback. You just want to defend your quarterback no matter what happens. Mm-hmm. And how did that work out for you? Yeah, it's funny you should say that. Um, uh, so I broke my femur, actually, pretty terribly. Um, and uh, my, my dad was always worried about a growth plate injury, being an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, it was a growth plate injury. Didn't let my brother, who, mind you, is well, six foot two. Well, but you're, you know, what's interesting is you're a smaller kind of guy, but you took on the challenge. Your nature is just to take on the challenge, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah. I'll say one thing. I, I love solving difficult problems, yeah, and uh, I, I mean it. I'm not a violent person, but yeah. when I get on the field, I just I wanted to hit the guy. Take I on really the challenge, did. Nick. What are you thinking? Um, you've had a lot of successes in your life <coughs> and career. Fair, fair. Yeah. Um, a lot of you, failures too. Do you find and and you you mentioned your failures a lot, and I was just wondering, do you, do you find yourself looking back over those failures and focusing on them more than your successes? The, the funny thing is that I actually don't make a distinction in a lot of ways. So, you know, when I say failures, I like to say fail forward, right? We've been failing with Yambu from day one. No one, no one believed in us in the beginning, but, you know, we've gone on to, make t- uh, to raise $2 million and to build a really great diversified biometric company. Um, I mean, there were many times that we could have said, oh, we only have $100,000 raised. Oh, you know, it didn't work in this particular context as well in, say, quick serve restaurants. But... We went on to pivot and find more money, find the right settings for it, and just really have uh, the grit. I know Tiffany mentioned that term before, the, the grit to make it work. I think grit matters more than talent, to be frank. And do you think your view on, on these failures really as successes uh, has kind of helped you in, in being able to pivot into this business? Yeah, I think it's because, I mean, I'll, I'll build this business or I'll die trying. Uh, I really absolutely will do that. Um, and uh, I don't view any failure as a failure. I, I view it as a learning opportunity, an opportunity to get the team around the table. And I don't even care who caused it. And, you know, we're a team. We, we fail and succeed as a team. And so, quite frankly, failures are great because they show you what not to do and they give you a data point on, hey, how might you be able to do this better? John? So where does this, in your childhood, where does this humility come from? Sorry, I said again, humility? What, what was the question? Where does this humility come from in your childhood? I, I think my, my dad, I think, uh, and my mom, I think they both worked really hard, and they, they never wanted anything for it. They never made me feel bad for any success or failure that I had or for the, the sacrifices that they made. And I think... Um, you know, even going back to the Spanish test, right, other times in childhood where uh, I felt like maybe I'm not the smartest in the room or maybe I'm not the best. And I think I realized we're all we're all human. You know, we all uh, eat, sleep, breathe, go to the bathroom just the same. And we all have the, you know, and, and quite frankly, there's a lot of luck involved. You know, what I mean, I was lucky to find my first investor check. I was lucky to find some of the, you know, family offices that wanted to invest in me. I was lucky that people gave me the opportunity to believe in me. Mm-hmm. Alex, or I'm uh, curious. I got another question. You mentioned the concept of happiness earlier, making people happy. Who who do you make happy now? That's funny. I'm I'm reading a lot of books on positive psychology. Uh, but uh, uh, I I hope I make my wife happy. I hope I make my my dog happy. I, I love my dog to death. It was actually my wife got it before the dog was in the picture before me, and they came as a a package deal, um, but uh, I, I get a lot of my joy, honestly, through watching my family, watching my friends uh, be happy. And I think I think a lot of that also comes from my mom. I mean, my mom 
really only got enjoyment from when she saw a smile on my face or a smile on my brother's face. Uh, and that's, that's what makes me feel happy. I mean, it's selfish in a way, right? I mean, when I, when I see my wife being happy, if, you know, I take her out to eat, I mean, heck, it's all of our money now, now that we're married, but, you know, or buy her a gift. It's not even about the gift. It's about the smile and the feeling. Andrew? I know that you just had your, your first child. Um, what'd you have? A girl. Her name is Nora. And uh, what's harder, being Nora's father or, or growing this company? Oh, man. I'm, I'm still in the honeymoon period. My wife's off from work. She works at MicroStrategy. She's uh, off for four months, and then she goes back. She's a very accomplished attorney in her own right. Um, I, uh, I think I don't know yet, to be quite frank. Um, I think I, I always say this to people. I have no idea how hard it's going to be. Um, our, our baby sleeps through the night. I shouldn't even admit that. You know, I've, you know, I've woken up at night maybe twice, and my, my wife is breastfeeding and doing an amazing job with the whole thing, and I know it's not easy. Um, and so, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, you'll, you'll learn I'll, I'll, I'll find out one day. What's the yeah. website address for Yambu? Uh, yambu.com, Y-O-M-B-U.com. We've been speaking with Joe Fallett, who is the co-founder and CEO of Yambu here on Executive Leaders Radio. Don't forget to visit our website, executiveleadersradio.com, to learn more about our executive leaders. It's executiveleadersradio.com. And we will be back in a moment right after this break. And your name is? Ray Briscuso. And Ray, what organization are you with? Life Sciences Conference Group. And what is Life Sciences Conference Group? What do you folks do? We produce annual conferences and events for medical technology, life science, pharmaceutical companies. Uh huh. So if I go to an event, you're the folks that are working behind the scenes to make it happen? That's correct. We're the ones that make sure the food's on the table, the seats are there, soundstage and lights, the area registration process works. And, and what kind of events are these? Are these just in the life science industry? Strictly in the life science industry. Why, why do you focus on the life science industry? Uh, we found that the best way to produce a high-quality event is to really know your customer. So we don't believe in numbers. It's names. We get to know each company. We find out what their actual mission and goals are, and we find the best way to deliver the value to them. And are you doing this nationally or regionally? We do it nationally. We're continuing to look for international opportunities, but it's primarily here in North America. And how old is this company? Uh, the company has just finished its 10th year. And how long have you been with the company? I founded the company 10 years ago. What gave you the idea to start this company? I used to work for a big corporation, and I produced the annual event for us. And when I decided to leave, they said, thank you for giving us $150 million worth of a business, and we'll see you later. Mm-hmm. And next time, I decided I would keep some ownership and do it myself. Uh, so you've been, building, you've been building this ever since. What do you like about your job? I like how different it is because we mix policy, we mix business. I might be putting one CEO together with a politician. I might be putting another CEO together with an investor. Mm-hmm. And I might be putting the next person together with their next employee. How interesting. Well, what's the website address for this organization? Medtechconference.org. Let me have that one more time. Medtechconference.org. Org. And the name of the organization again is? A Life Sciences Conference Group. Life Sciences Conference Group. And your name is? Ray Briscuso. Ray Briscuso. We've been talking to Ray Briscuso, CEO and managing partner of Life Sciences Conference Group here on Executive Leaders Radio. This has been your business spotlight. I'm Tina Leone. I'm the CEO of the Boston Business Improvement District. And what is the Boston Business Improvement District? We work to attract, support, and connect the most compelling, creative, and ambitious minds in our region. Boston is known as an epicenter for research and discovery. Uh, Some of the greatest things that are invented, such as the MRI, the barcode, the internet, 
the first satellite, all were either conceived, funded, or developed by organizations here in Boston. How, how old is this organization? We're just, just shy of six years old. How long have you been there? How long have you been uh, there? Almost six years as well. Did you found this organization? Yes, I, I am the founding CEO. Why did you do that? Well, they, they, the organization actually came about uh, by the commercial property owners in why, Boston. Why, why, why does it turn you on? Why does your gig turn you on? <laughs> people. I mean, we the, the, the ability to connect people and then who knows the next great idea is going to result from that. We have incredible minds in the Washington, D.C. area, and Boston is, as I said, the epicenter for the smartest people in this area. So your job, you're like the master connector. I feel like the mayor of, of Boston, the mayor of innovation, because that's uh -huh. what's happening. So your, idea, your, your thought is in order to create more stuff, in order to launch more businesses, in order to cause more good, it's a matter of connecting exactly. the right people. Exactly. And you like being in the middle of all that I, stuff. Oh, we love it. We love it. And simple things, just connecting people through events, through art, uh, through a happy hour. Mm -hmm. You don't know what's going to come out of that. Mm -hmm. That's what's exciting. So it's all about the people. And you're the uh, you're the founder of this organization. Is this a nine to five kind of job oh, for you? Oh hell no! It's a lot longer uh -huh. than that, baby. So do you have to you have to work the weekends and stuff yeah, like that? Yeah, sure, sure. Let me have the website address of this sure, organization. It's bostonbid.com, and, and you can download Boston Connect mobile app. Let me have uh, let me have that website address one more bostonbid time. Bostonbid.com. Uh, it's B A. Give me the spelling on that. B A L L S T O N B I D dot com. Excellent. Your name again is Tina Leone. And the name of the organization is the Balsam Business Improvement District. And this has been your business spotlight. Back in a moment. One help building your business with help from the show's CEOs. Our CEOs can help you uncover more opportunities, grow your sales, connect you, help you raise money, all the big issues. Because our CEOs have been there and done that. Succeeding in creating millions of jobs and earning millions of dollars. And some are available to advise you. Now, email mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. That's mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. The same CEOs you've heard on the show for 10 years may be willing to help you build your business, uncover new opportunities, grow your sales, connect you, help you raise money, all the big issues, because our CEOs have been there and done that. Succeeding in creating millions of jobs and earning millions of dollars. Some of the CEOs who have appeared on our shows over the last 10 years may be willing to help you grow, assuming you've ser you're serious about your success, serious about your own success, because it all starts with the leader. If you're serious about creating your own successful business or truly committed to putting your nose to the grindstone and doing whatever it takes to make your business successful, we may be able to match you with successful CEOs who have created millions of jobs and earned millions of dollars to help you create your success. We've established unique relationships with a unique universe of over 7,000 CEOs who have created substantial wealth for their companies, their teams, and themselves. These women and men get the build in their blood and often continue to start and build businesses even after they've created substantial wealth for themselves because they love the challenge of building a business. Perhaps we can present you and your business to some of these CEOs to gain their interest in helping you. Now, email mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. That's mentors at executiveleadersradio.com to hopefully match you with some of the CEOs we've had on the show for the last 10 years. Mentors at executiveleadersradio.com. We're back. You're listening to Executive Leaders Radio. This is your host, Herb Cohen. We'd like to introduce Sheldon Klein. Sheldon is the president of the American Intellectual Property Law Association and a partner in the law firm of Great Plant Moody. What is the American Intellectual uh, Prop Intellectual Property Law Association, Sheldon? 
AIPLA is an organization of about 13,000 intellectual property law professionals throughout the United States and abroad. Mm -hmm. And and what is, uh, tell us a little bit about what is Gray Plant Moody? Gray Plant Moody is a full service national law firm with locations in Minneapolis and Washington, Mm D.C., where I am. And how large or how small is the firm? The firm's about 170 lawyers. And where are you from originally? I'm from Detroit and Brooklyn. All right. Why from, well, let's see, we'll figure this out. What, what was going on about the age of three, and why would you be from both Detroit and Brooklyn? Born in Detroit, my folks divorced when I was three, moved back to Brooklyn, where my mother was from. Then my mother remarried and another gentleman from Detroit, so we moved back to Detroit when I was about nine. And in terms of brothers and sisters and stepsisters and brothers, where where are you in the pecking order? I'm the youngest. I've got an older sister, five years older, and then three older stepsisters. All right, so you're the youngest of five. And uh, tell me a little bit about what was your favorite subject in school? History was my favorite subject. Why, why, Why history? Why was history your favorite subject? I enjoyed the stories, I enjoyed the lessons, and uh, saw very quickly that you can apply those lessons to today, the old classic about history repeating itself, it really is true, and uh-huh. also it's true to get lessons that you maybe don't want to repeat. So the, histi- the your love of history as being your favorite subject, what's that, what's that have to do with the practice of law? So. Th- That has to do with um, learning from the past because law is based on precedent, but also my study of Talmud as a young man has to do with my practice of law. Your study of Talmud? What are you talking about? Well, I learned Talmud at a relatively early age in high school and then went on to study for two years in Israel. And the whole aspect of problem solving, seeing the nuances, seeing six sides of every question really translates well into How young were you when you were exposed to the Talmud? I guess I was uh, probably about 14 at first. Was this through the bar mitzvah or was this afterwards? Afterwards. Mm -hmm. So why did you continue after the bar mitzvah? Well, my school offered it, and then after that, I just... But most of the kids, you know, they drop out of Hebrew school after after uh, their bar mitzvah. You decided to stick with it. How come? Well, I went to a Jewish school that emphasized Jewish studies, and so that was part of the curriculum. And then once I was in 12th grade, I said, you know something? I actually am interested in this in its own right, and I'm going to do it another couple of years. And the Talmud was looking at things all different ways, looking at an issue a bunch of different ways, which really interested you. That's Absolutely. Andrew. In the green room, Sheldon, uh, we talked about you know, blending families and, and you know, being raised for a spell by a single mom and, and the rarity of that. Uh, you mentioned that the move from Brooklyn to Detroit went pretty smooth, but uh, talk to us about the integration with your, your step-siblings. My, I credit my, my stepdad, my mom, and my step-siblings. All of, all of them were just so fantastic in welcoming my sister and I into the family and doing what they could to make it work. Who are you closest with? Of, of your new si- uh, siblings? Probably my youngest stepsister. She's three years older than me, mm-hmm. and she lived with us for a time. In the green room, you, talked, you told us a story about boots. Can you tell us about that? It's kind of apocryphal in our family, and I, I told it because I think it exemplifies the way my stepdad was with me. I had a pair of old ripped leather hippie boots that I loved, and one day I came home, and my dad hated them. One day I came home, and they were down in the basement near the incinerator. 
And later on, I went and got them, brought them back up to my room, and my dad never said a word. What, 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 what did that teach you? Why was that so meaningful? It taught me the value of knowing when to back off. He knew when he just needed to let me do my thing. I was, you know, teenager, preteen years, and he knew what to do. So it sounds to me, and it's pretty evident that it worked because you believed that the integration was successful between the families. It sounds like he sort of knew what he was doing. Very much so. Uh-huh. Okay. Besides your parents, what other adult was influential when you were young? My grandfather, my, both my grandparents were very influential. My grandfather was a Talmud scholar, uh, eons above where I would ever be. And he was also an entrepreneur together with my grandmother. They ran a hotel, a small Jewish hotel resort in the Catskill Mountains where my mother was born and raised. So what, what from your grandfather or grandmother, what aspects of them show up today in your practice at the Gray Plant Moody? I hope that it's integrity. Uh, they were very honest, moral people. Um, for example, a lot of people who stayed at the hotel were very particular about what they ate. They had to eat a strictly kosher diet. Nowadays, if you go to a restaurant, there has to be a certain rabbi there from an mm-hmm. independent organization who mm-hmm. certifies it. In my grandfather's hotel, all the greatest rabbis in the, in the world trusted my grandfather for his certification. Which, what was the name of the of hotel? The food. It was called the Kantrowitz House. Uh-huh. Alex? Sheldon, you talked about the influence of music uh, in 8 to 14. Tell us more about that. So I love rock and roll. I've always loved rock and roll. And when I was a teenager, I formed a band. I played keyboards, guitar, sometimes drums in, in my basement when I would do track recordings. And I was the lead singer. And, of course, I was a horrible singer, but it was just me and my buddy on the drum. So, and, and he was even worse than me. So, so you're really creative. How does your creativity translate today to your law practice? Well, I think any good lawyer has to be creative, uh, and particularly in my field, trademark, copyrights. I deal with creative people all the time. And the idea is to help them clear their brands, to make it make to find a way for them to do what they want to do, to say yes and not to say no. It's very easy to say no in my field because there's a lot of brands out there that seem similar. Alex, uh, excuse me, uh, Nick, what do you think? Uh, what was it that uh, drew you into trademark law? You know, I loved the subject in law school, and then coming out of law school, the opportunity came up for a position with a small trademark and patent law firm, and I grabbed it, and I had some great mentors there. So I, I, I'm, I'm interested. Do you really think that there's a connection between the Talmud and intellectual property law and the practice of law? Do you really see a connection there? Absolutely. What, what is it? Well, believe it or not, the Talmud actually talks about copyright problems, about the rights to, to books that rabbis you know, wanted to be able to make a living. And so you've got copyright as, as old as that. You're, you're the, uh, now with this American Intellectual Property Law Association. What's your role there? I'm the president this year. Why, why, do, you, why, are you, why, why do you want to do that? Why is that so important to you? You know, I've been active in the organization for many years. It's important to me uh, that the public know about the value of intellectual property. Without copyright, we wouldn't have artists. Without brands, we wouldn't have ways for consumers to differentiate products and for companies to make money from their brands. So you like the clarity of intellectual property law. You I like, do. 
It's like zoning law. What zoning law was the real estate. Intellectual property law is the brands. No, yes. What are you thinking there? It's it's for intellectual property instead of real property, basically. Yeah. Uh huh. And uh, do you still study Talmud? I do. I try. Mm-hmm. Whenever you have, when you have the time, when you have the opportunity. And do you read the same passage and find different meaning in it when you're when you're studying Talmud nowadays? Oh, people spend their whole lives trying to find the meaning of a certain page. Uh, I'm not that kind of a scholar, but it's really an incredible, and, and, and incredible you, body of how work. How do you know that um, the rabbis trusted your grandparents to make sure that it was kosher? Did you used to hang out at that hotel? I did uh, as a child. Were, they, were, there, were there discussions around the dinner table? Uh, th- that's, uh, that I'm too young to remember. Uh-huh. Yeah, but my mom has a lot of good stories. Uh-huh, John? I'm curious, how does rock and roll show up today in your, uh, your work and life? Well, my wife and I just won uh, the dance contest for our law firm uh, winter party about a month ago, so I guess I still got it. And to what, some were you, what, were you, what were you dancing to? What kind of music? Well, uh, it was a Roaring Twenties party, so it was a Charleston. Doesn't quite fit, but I love all kinds of music. Uh-huh. Sounds like you're a good dancer as well as a musician. When you're mentoring lawyers at your firm, what do you try to pass down from what you learned from either the Talmud or growing up? Well, the Talmud, of course, it's don't stop when you think you've got a problem solved. Keep going. Keep looking at all the possible angles. Um, in terms of growing up, again, it's the kind of things that, that my mom and my mm-hmm. dad and my stepdad all taught give me. me the, uh, give Being me the web- patient with folks. Let's have the website address for Gray Plant Moody. GPMlaw.com and, and AIPLA. <laughs> Law.org is the Let me have both of them one more time, please. GPMlaw.com, AIPLA.org. You've been speaking with Sheldon Klein, president of the Merlin Intellectual Property Law Association and partner at Great Plant Moody. John, can you give us a rundown on who we've had in the air today, please? Sure, Herb. Our first guest was Tiffany olson Cleman, CEO of Distal Networks. Then we talked with Rob Henniger, president and CEO of Henniger Media Services. Our third guest was Joe Follett, co-founder and CEO of Yambu, and we just finished talking to Sheldon Klein. He's the president of the American Intellectual Property Law Association and partner of Gray Plant Moody. like to thank my co-hosts, Hallie Morris, Cressa, Andrew Howard, Howard Insurance, Alex Bartholomus, People Stretch Solutions, Shirley Mowry, Hartsbach, and Nick Gorig, Remen Payton, and Braz. Well, for giving me hands from the questions. Hope you're providing a listening audience and educational and entertaining show. Thank you for joining us today and have a nice day. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to Executive Leaders Radio, the region's premier radio show highlighting local executive leaders. We hope you've enjoyed the show here on 1500 AM. You can learn more about Executive Leaders Radio by visiting executiveleadersradio.com or tune in next time right here on 1500 AM. That's executiveleadersradio.com.